Yeah, that's a wizard. A hundred percent. Calling the game right now. Dressed like the Michelin man, ready to get my f**k on. A really good team that shouldn't have been. Oh, seven different teams won conference championships. You obey not one of them. I just wanted to point that out. Welcome, everybody, back to the Sports Experience Podcast. It's Dom and Chris, and uh, today we're going to go to the baseball diamond. Yeah, we're back on it. Who are we with? We are on a one-way tricket ticket to the Bobby Bone Ia zone. Oh, dang. One of the best smiles in the game. I'll, I'll give him that. Oh, we'll bring that smile up later when we talk about a certain uh, New York Mets career. Yeah. Yeah. Talking Bobby Bonilla. Bobby Bonilla. Roberto Martin Antonio Bonilla, born February 23rd, 1963 in the Bronx yeah. of all places. Kind of a nice little Bronx tale we got going today. Um, New Yorker through and through, though. I mean, very proud of where he came from. Uh, grew up very poor though grew up very poor in the bronx um near uh university avenue and 175th street uh his dad uh, was an electrician and uh his mom uh was an educated type she later got a dra- graduate degree in social work yeah and uh yeah it was a very uh humble upbringing humble upbringing yeah. very poverty very dangerous upbringing uh uh, if you want to uh, go into that. I was going to um, say he went to uh, high school in the Bronx, middle school in the Bronx. And it, during this time, it was like pretty bad. So it was he had sports to kind of rely on. And you see this with a lot of guys that have this or they kind of stay out of trouble because they excel at sports. And he had a really good upbringing with his parents, even though his parents divorced when he was eight. They were both very involved in his life. Like his dad would talk about after the divorce, he'd go, he'd drive up next to their apartment and they'd have the light on before they went to bed so he could see all the kids were safe and at home. Yep. And he talked to his dad was an electrician and he'd go into all these old buildings where you uh, couldn't tell like which wires were which and he'd get shocked off a ladder and he'd always speak about how his dad was his hero. And like, he's like, look, I'm not a hero. I play baseball. Your parents should be your heroes almost like Charles Barkley. Oh yeah. Almost like the Charles Barkley where he's just like, why are you idolizing these guys? Your dad's out there busting his ass every day. Yeah. You would talk about sleeping with his bat in his bed with his yep. brother, Javier, you know, taking practice cuts. Uh, his, uh, lady friend and later wife, um, would talk about her, her mom always taking a glass centerpiece off the table. Cause he'd always just take hacks and, uh, he was a switch hitter. So he'd do it from both sides. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the dining room table. Um, and he would always say, you think you talk about pressure in baseball. Pressure is growing up in the Bronx, poor, seeing junkies strewn about your apartment building, like with needles in their arms. Or he saw a guy chase another with a 22 down the street when him and his friends were going to play some pickup basketball. Like, well, we, we talked about this with Sterling Sharp, which is a completely different. He grew up in the country and they worked all these hours but it was like for these guys like sports became like this relief where like they didn't have to worry about what's going on around him or he didn't have to like pick up an extra job kind of thing so like that's where we see Benia really start to excel and we see this in his uh high school where do you go to high school herbert's uh h lemon high school yeah uh-huh herbert uh lemon, lemon. High school. Yeah. lemon in the bronx yep. um yeah the thing the sad part was is he was a superstar in high school but Scouts wouldn't want to go watch him because fear of getting murdered. Well, this is the thing I thought was ridiculous was he probably was a great high school baseball player, but literally was completely unscouted to the fact where he didn't even think that he could continue on with his baseball career, even though he was 
you yeah, know, you a prospect. To a yeah. He went to a technical school for like a semester, kind of like after high school. He thought he was going to, he was studying computer science. That's where he thought his future was going to go. But you can't find the hidden gem. Like, come on. It, and, it's... It, it's like they would, what would they do? The scouts, I mean, just kind of drive by the stadium and then speed up again. Like, well, I imagine it has a lot to do with race, especially in this time too. They're he just talked like, about the racism yep. he encountered, like going to a school with white people. He said he never encountered it in the neighborhood, but taking like an hour long bus ride to and fro and people saying they were going to kill him and things like that. It's like, man, it sucks to be you right now, even though you're a star baseball player. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty ridiculous to look back and think that we almost missed out on this great baseball player and how many other baseball players we really missed out on because there wasn't this, and I mean, still. Yeah, so. and he had talked about it. I mean, like, there were so many good players within New York City for baseball. I mean, yep. everyone associates New York City with basketball, like we talked with Chris Mullen, but like, he said just people wouldn't come and watch because, you know, they're not playing AAU tournaments or they're, you know, in a relatively poor and dangerous economic area. Yep. But his high school coach, Joe Levine, went to bat for him after his senior season because he found out they were having a high school all-star game or high, high school traveling team that went to Scandinavia to play exhibition games. So... The story goes is he kind of cooked his stats a little bit. Like he was a great high school player, but he maybe inflated him a little bit. To so get him on, get him team. on the team. Yeah. yeah, because he could be like he because Benia in 1981 was not drafted by anybody in Major League Baseball, which made him a free agent. So Levine gets him on this team, and by basically just you know fate or luck or whatever you want to call it, one of his teammates, Jim Thrift. His father was a scout for the Pirates. Yep, the Pittsburgh Sid Thrift. Pirates. Yeah, Sid Thrift. And saw him because he was out there watching his son on this European tour and was just like, wow, who is that? <laughs> who, who does he? Who did he get drafted for? Oh, no, no, no. He's wide open? Okay. Yeah, it's just like, who is he? Who, who holds his draft rights? Yeah. Nobody? Nobody. Oh, well, here's a contract. So. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the thing we were talking about before was like, he was so quick to be like, no, 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 let's get this guy a, a contract now. Because I imagine other people started to see him on this European tour. Like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Yeah. Like, oh, you didn't watch my games, you pansy white jerks. <laughs> but anyway, um, he's signed by the Pirates. He kind of struggles early in his minor league career, though. I think a lot of that is due to just his inexperience, because I'm assuming in New York, Spring baseball really uh, isn't a thing. No. I, due I bet, to the weather, they're playing in gyms and shit. Mm -hmm. I bet it's very, it was a very different time, and then he ends up breaking his leg. Yeah, so his first couple of years in the minors, he hits um, 212 and then 228. But those are his 18 and 19-year-old seasons. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's living on $600 a month. Most of that is going to calling his girlfriend and his family back home. Oh, he's I saw that. Florida. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, in 1983, with Alexandria in the Carolina League, Bull Durham, by the way, mm -hmm. he hits 256 with 19 doubles, 11 home runs, and 59 RBIs. And the thing about Benia is, if you don't know, if you Google him, if you're a large switch-hitting power hitter, teams are going to give you more leeway than if you're a light-hitting infielder. I was going to say, and, and they could see that he has obvious room for improvement when he's hitting 200 and 200 and then he goes up to the Carolina leagues and hits 250 and they see that improvement and they're like oh here we go this is what we're we were hoping for yeah and then because it, yeah with the, with that switch hitting power you know guy they pre, like you were saying they're pretty much just like no no, no we'll wait 
and see what happens until the very end and be like, uh, he's 28. What's, let's cut him. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, let's wait till his age 22 season. Yeah. Um, he's playing uh, winter ball two in uh, Puerto Rico, um, to, which is good for him as far as development. A uh, good story after his 84 season where he goes uh, 265, 19 doubles, 11 homers, and 71 RBIs. He uh, marries Millie, his high school his, sweetheart. Yep. Um, they talked about because they had almost no money. One of his teammates, Juan Augusto, paid for the wedding license, which was $22. Oh, that's awesome. And his wife said she bought these cheap gray shoes, which turned her, sh- turned her feet gray. Oh, yeah. But uh, like you had brought up before, 1985. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, he's uh, in a collision with Bip Roberts. You know who Bip Roberts is? Uh, let's get into it. I don't know if you remember those yeah. old Beckett commercials, but Bip Roberts was one of my favorite players growing up for the Padres. He, uh, him and Tony Gwynn were looking through a Beckett book. Oh, yeah. The baseball cards. He's like, man, Tony, my card's with $500 in mint condition. He's like, man, you're talking about Robin Roberts. Your card's worth only four cents. When it's Kermit the Frog voice. He's like. So good. He's like, four cents? Six if in mint condition. Six. But anyway, him and Bip Roberts collide. Um, yep. Uh, in the outfield, and he breaks his leg. Yeah, and it's a pretty horrendous injury. The Benias said that the Pirates almost gave up on him after that. Well, especially in this era, it was an injury that they were unsure if he was going to come back from and be, you know, the same player, the same prospect that they were hoping, and because he was on the doorstep of the major leagues before yes. this, and then he gets sent back down to the Carolina League, and, and yeah. So then uh, we see in one of the more interesting things that MLB has, um, we see him get picked up by the White Sox because of the Rule 5 draft. So so he rehabs his injury, right? And, you know, he's kind of back on the doorstep of the big leagues. And there's the thing is Chris brought up the Rule 5 draft in Major League Baseball, which means it's kind of evolved over the years as far as the rules. But generally what it is now is if you – you have a 40-man roster of players on your major league roster. Granted, you only play 25, but you have a roster of 40. What teams can do based on previous year's record is you can take any minor league player who's not on the 40-man roster and just put them on your team under the condition that if you rule five draft these guys, they have to stay on your roster for the entire season. Otherwise, they revert back to the team they were on previously. So the White Sox pick him up, and because of this, he makes his major league debut sooner than expected. Well, and the the reason why this came into play was they didn't want teams just stacking up youth players and then sitting on them. They want these youth players to come through, and that's exactly what happens with Bonilla is the White Sox aren't as deep as the Pirates at this time. Mm -hmm. He goes to the White Sox, and then they give him his debut, but... I mean, it, this is the thing that I found with Bonilla is he really needs the right situation. Yeah, and p- what, what ends up happening. So he, with the White Sox, he hits um, 269 with two homers, 10 doubles, um, and 26 RBIs. What ends up happening, though, is the Pirates are like, oh, my God, now that he's finally healthy, let's bring him on back. Yeah. So they trade Jose De Leon to the White Sox, and Bonilla comes back. 256, three homers, and 47 RBIs for him. And that's this is in uh, 87. This is 86. 86. Yeah, because he splits oh, yeah, 86. 86 with both teams. Yep. You know what's funny? I always had his baseball cards. He was kind of a favorite player of mine, a non-padre back in the day. I'd always be weirded out seeing like his first season. It said CHW slash Pitt. Yep. And I always wondered why he played for the White Sox 
after knowing that he was in the minors for the Pirates. Yeah, so, for, for half a season. Yeah. Started at third base. In, nine, in 1987 yep. and was great at the plate. I mean, he hit 300 with 33 doubles, 15 RBIs, and uh, 15 homers and 77 RBIs. And in 88, he's an all-star. I mean, he's – and at this point, if you don't know – the Pirates are building a juggernaut Yes, as far as young players, and we'll get into some of them later, but he's a first-time All-Star in 88, 32 doubles, 24 homers, 100 RBIs, hitting 274, and he wins his first Silver Slugger at the hot corner. That's pretty impressive. Well, that, that's what we kind of constantly come back to because this is in 88 where he ends up getting moved from third base to right field. Yeah, and, and he was a horrendous infielder. This is like. what people were saying was he was so good at the plate that they were putting him at third. Like, yeah, but, I mean, he's just making it all up. They move him to this outfield, and you look at this outfield. Yeah, they it right is field. so ridiculous with how young these this you know yeah him, you can't Bonds, take his, it's it's crazy you can't take him out of the lineup because he's hitting but when he commits 67 errors in That's two seasons at an important egregious, position yes. it's like well we got to find somewhere for you so they put him in right field and he actually does all right. That's the thing that people yeah. were saying is that should have been his position. And I, I imagine because of his lack of like kind of coming through he should have been more of an outfielder well his body build fits outfield a little more yeah because at, at third base he's the kind word is rotund and you'll see that towards the end of his career <laughs> like he's he's a big guy yeah he's a huge guy um yeah in 89 you brought up and the outfield too like we had talked about you have barry bonds and left should be a hall of famer steroids or not andy van slyke in center all-star on some really good cardinals teams previous to the pirates and then Benia and Wright. Yeah. You get three All-Stars. And uh, yeah, 89, All-Star again, 281, 37 doubles, 10 triples. Did you see, because we did Eric Davis earlier, that one ball that he hit in the gap that he just gunned down Benia oh, at yeah. third base? Yeah. Not a very fast runner, but still no, 10 but triples. Is I was going to say, with how slow of a base runner he is, 10 triples is ridiculous. Also, the amount of doubles he has. He's a double machine. Oh, he's he's an extra base hit machine. One yeah. of these seasons, he leads the, the entire league in extra base hits. Yeah. Um, 24 homers, 86 RBIs. Um, and the Pirates are now primed to make some runs towards the postseason because they've acquired all these guys, you know, via trade or draft. They're all developed. And 1990 is a really special year for them. Um, they win the NL East with a 95-67 and 67 record. And this might be Benia's best season in the majors. Yes, I would say. He finishes second in the MVP voting to his teammate uh, Bonds. Um, he's an all-star again. Uh, career high, 112 runs that year. Uh, 39 doubles, uh, 7 triples, 32 homers, and 120 RBIs while hitting 280. I mean, you could make the argument that year that Benia probably should have been the MVP of the National League. Well, that... Pirates team was pretty ridiculous. So yeah. it, it's it goes to show like how great they were, and they really should have had one World Series under them. But that's all right. Wins a Silver Slugger, but yep. unfortunately, this is a three-year run for the Pittsburgh Pirates, where it's hello darkness, my old friend. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they uh, they go to the playoffs, and we talked about it in our Eric Davis episode. Um, they're playing uh, the Reds who won the NL West, and if you didn't know, the Reds were in first place from day one to the end of the season yeah they were wire to wire yeah wire to wire um they lose the series in six games uh Benia has a horrendous series much like bonds and 
Bonds was until that 2002 uh, World Series with the Giants. He was known as a postseason choke artist, like a complete and total one. Benia only hit 190, one double, and one RBI in that series. Uh, Cincinnati staff with uh, Riho, Browning, and those guys pretty much just shut him down. Yeah. But uh, 1991, this is an important year for Bobby Bo because his contract's going to be up after the season. And as my brother-in-law will tell you, the Pittsburgh Pirates have been run by a bunch of cheap fucks for the entirety of his lifetime. Yeah. But uh, so Benia's contract's going to be up and he doesn't want to leave Pittsburgh. Him and his wife love living there. I was just going to say, like, he even said he, w- he was going to take a less a lesser contract, but like they were offering him like nothing. I think the thing was that and it pissed Bonds off too, whose contract ended up after 1992. Yeah. They gave Andy Van Slyke a very lucrative uh, contract extension and some people will claim race. Some will claim that they're just cheap in general, but it really rubbed Benia and Bonds the wrong way. But it doesn't affect his play on the field in 91. The, not only is he good, the Pirates are really good. Um, he won a silver slugger. He finished third in the MVP voting that year. Hit uh, 302 with 44 doubles, six triples, 18 homers. And he led, yeah, that was the season he led he the led, league in extra base yeah. hits. Um, 100 RBIs and a career-high 391 on base percentage, which is pretty dang impressive. Well, you see him in this contract year, and he's pretty much showing everybody else, like, hey, this is what you're going to get. Pirates are not paying it out, so, like, the biggest suitor is going to come in. I'm going to walk. Yeah. Yeah, like, I'm going to walk after this season. I hope I win a World Series here and I'm immortalized. Um, They finished 98 and 64. Uh, Jim Leland is their uh, famous skipper, who he'll come back into play later. Um, But the damn Braves finally are good again (laughs) with their starting rotation of John Smoltz, Steve Avery, and Tom Glavin. Well, that's that's what I've noticed in this like 89 to 92 or whatever you want to call it, 88 to 91, is really pitching wins these series where everybody thought the pirates were going to be the team to go on they're just like look at this you know bonds bonilla you know three four two three and like it really turned into these guys who were just like no 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 it's going to be a one nothing game oh yeah and this is what i'm talking about with the braves exactly it's going to be absolutely a pitching duel and we're going to win the umpire strike zone goddamn braves oh, throw yeah, a strike in the opposite batter's box is tom glavin giving you a beecher uh, in the goddamn clubhouse Jesus. No, but the Pirates are up 3-2 in this series. Yeah. Uh, yet they have to face in Game 6 and 7. Steve Avery, who kind of lost to history, should probably do an episode on him, but there were people who'd argue in that 91-92 and 92 season, he was better than both Smoltz and Glavin. Yeah. But they end up losing to Avery in Game 6, which forces a Game 7, and... John Smoltz, much like Game 7, which he lost in the World Series later that year, pitches a masterful performance in the win. And the Pirates lose in seven games. And it's really a tragic thing to see because they probably would have given the Twins fits in that year's World Series with Kirby Puckett. I was going to say, it would have been more of a... I feel like an even an even matchup. Like They really probably could have taken the Twins. But this is the thing about... this pirate team and you see it kind of blow up right after this is like they really have these windows where it's like all right here's our three-year chance and then they did about 10 years ago yes exactly (laughs) and then now bonilla's just like 
they obviously aren't going to pay me. Where am I going? And I should note he did well in that series. He hit over yeah. 300. Not a lot of extra base hits, but he did well. He was a good, the yes. Pong. But uh, when, the se- when the season ends, it's a free agent feeding frenzy for his services. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up is he is from the Bronx, and the Yankees... Had they been run by George Steinbrenner at this time, remember, he was suspended from baseball for oh, the I Dave remember. Winfield stuff. Yeah. He likely would have signed with the Yankees. But then he makes a terrible career choice. Well, it's, it's something that you can't really see. You, you know, he probably was thinking, like, look, the Mets are putting money in. They put, they're putting a ton of money into me. They put a ton me. of money in the offseason for other people, too. So, like, that was what the Envision was, and, man, did it go bad. Oh, my God. I saw this old clip. It was, like, leading into the 92 season. Who are the favorites in the NL East this year? Oh, it's the Mets. They have to be. It, it was 100%, but it was a bunch of guys who had never played together, and they ended up, like, it's hard to even say what happened with that team. There's, there's a book called The Worst Team Money Could Buy. Yeah. And you know who's on this team later in the year, too? Another guy we did an episode on, Jeff Kent. Oh, really? Jeff Kent makes it yeah, on that? because remember, he was traded from Toronto oh, in 92 yeah. for David Cohn. For David Cohn. So Bonilla signs a five-year, $29 million contract, which is without a doubt the biggest contract I saw. It's weird to think 30 years later, $29 uh, million. Guys are getting over that a season now. <laughs> middle relievers are getting that. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. But this is something I found so interesting. He got $6.1 million in his first year with the Mets, which was actually over $2 million over the next contract so he was getting paid that much more than everybody else oh yeah no i mean he was the he was supposed to be the savior because they yeah. just come out of that you know 86 in those late 80s almost but not quite years um the funny thing at his press conferences he puts on a mets jersey and a hat and he addresses the press that says i love this you're not going to be able to i know you're going to try but you're not going to be able to wipe the smile off my face to quote happy gilmore talk about your all-time backfires well this was something that people were saying was like there was problems in the locker room, but man, Bonilla hated the New York media and the New York media hated him from like day one. Oh yeah. And it was kind of confusing as to why there was this like hatred where he immediately came in and was just like, I know you guys are pieces of shit. I'm going to be smiling through this whole thing. And then like, there's a bunch of stuff with him in the locker room, yeah. like cussing them out and like all kinds of challenging stuff. them to fights. Like, and the worst thing for him was that he didn't play particularly well like the rest of the team didn't play particularly well. Well, this is why it really exacerbated the situation was he was the most, he was the highest paid player in MLB and he really went into a slump and I feel like it had to do with he needs the right situation. So I feel like he yep. wasn't getting the backing that he wanted from the fans, from the locker room, everything. Well, when you don't have the you clubhouse. Know, a strong starting staff like the Pirates had with Doug Drabeck, yes. you don't have the likes of Bonds and Van Slyke and Jeff King in your lineup kind of to protect you. Bad things are not... And you're on the Mets. I'm sorry, Dave, but you're on the Mets. Like, it doesn't work. Well, it's interesting because we see these... You see these fans be like, why don't they just put $100 million and buy all these players? That just does not work. No. You have to have a system that players, the right players come in. And this is one of the greatest examples of that end up backfiring. You spend free agent money to make the final pieces. The core of your team has to be the team. You spend wildly in free agency to get the last piece, not the piece. And we see this later in his career, which I feel like is is 
what he becomes is almost like a hired gun and they almost just try to get like six hired guns they're like yeah. look we're bringing them all together it's gonna be the wild boys <laughs> wild boys and you're just like no nah, that's not how any team sport works no huh? especially baseball especially, uh, especially baseball. baseball seriously though basketball because, okay maybe um even football if it's like a quarterback i was just like gonna say yeah baseball it, it really you still have to have those pieces around where it has to fit in and this is the worst team money could buy. That's the perfect title of that book. But this is probably one of those situations that you look at with Bonilla where he absolutely hates his time in New York more he, than I feel like anybody he could. He hates the media. He hates his teammates. There's, you know, there's uh, stories about him. And it's true. You can see it in the video. He puts in earplugs when he goes to bat. So we can't hear the booze at home games. At home games. And there's, it was echoing. He called the um, uh, press box to contest an error that he committed in one of the games, which is like, you're only making things worse for yourself, bro. I know you're placed in a crappy situation, but you said, oh, the Mets, that's a good choice. Well, people are saying that he took the money and not the right situation. But if you look at the amount of money they are offering him, it's like, how, how would you not take Krusty that? and the Canyonero, man. That's all I can think of. Canyonero. Brink's truck after my goddamn house. Canyonero. She blinds everybody with a super high beam. She's just a squirrel squashing, deer smashing, rapping machine, Canyonero. So in 92, he hits 249, 19 homers, 70 RBIs. Um, Rebounds in 93 to make the all-star team. He only hits 265, but does have a career-high 34 homers at 21 doubles, 87 RBIs. And then 94, it's a strike-shortened year, but he's picking it up. It's just the rest of the team around him isn't. I was just going to say, so 92, he starts off horribly. Yeah. And then even though he digs himself out, he was literally an all-star in 93. Mm-hmm. Even though he does that, the Mets fans, media are still like, this is a bum. Get out of here, you bum. Go and you're back just... to Cincinnati! It's ridiculous because you still have him under this gigantic contract it's an albatross so, yeah, yeah. It, it's horrible he hits 294 or 290 and 94 with 20 homers 24 doubles and 67 rbis like i said it's a strike he probably could have done better yeah probably could have had it in the 30s for his dingers um 95 though he has a great year he's an all-star for the final time he, in 80 games for the mets he hits 325 with 18 homers and 53 rbis but then he's given a reprieve this is when he becomes a hired gun. Yeah, this is like, yeah, so, you're, that's a perfect like statement for that. Yeah, is, it, it's really, if you look at his career, he really comes in as just like, all right, this is going to be a right fielder. He's going to go in. He's going to be solid at the plate, not ridiculous, but we're not going to have to worry about him whatsoever. He's going to act like a profession, veteran professional and do his thing as long as we're good, as, as long as we have exactly. pieces and our fan base isn't insane. So... On July 28th, 1995, he's traded to the then-contending Baltimore Orioles for outfielders Alex Ochoa, Damon Buford, and a player to be named later who was pitcher um, uh, James Williams, I believe. But um, in Baltimore, he does even better. I was going to say, in Baltimore, he really becomes that free agent that you want. He hits puts uh, the team together and 333, yeah. which is one out of every three trips. He's getting a hit 10 homers, 46 RBIs, 12 doubles. And he finishes with a career high 
329 batting average, 182 hits, along with 28 homers and 99 RBIs for the season. The Orioles missed the playoffs, but because he has an extra year left on his contract, 96, he stays in Baltimore. And that was a year where they brought in other hired guns, like a Robbie Alomar, like a Jimmy Key to add to their pitching staff. So, I mean, Baltimore, in, oh, no, Jimmy Key had jumped ship to um, uh, the Yankees, I believe. But yeah, 96 um, goes into that year. They get the AL wild card. So he's back in the playoffs for the first time since 91. Yeah. Finish 88 and 74. Um, that, uh, that year, he hit 287 with 28 homers and 116 RBIs. And he's in a lineup where he's completely protected. This was the year Brady Anderson was on steroids hitting 50 homers. Alomar's in the prime of his career. Rafael Palmero's doing Viagra commercials and uh, taking steroids probably for him. So he's nice and protected in that lineup. Does a great job. They make the playoffs. They go uh, up against the Indians in the ALCS that year. Uh, where Alomar played the hero, but uh, Benia has a grand slam in yeah. game one for him. So everything's cooking. They win that series three to one in four games. Um, then AL they champs. And then they face the team that beat them in the division in the ALCS. Yep. And things don't really go right for Bobby Bow in this series. Uh, I think a lot of it is due to the momentum shift in game one where that young child on a Derek Jeter fly ball to right reached over the railing. Oh, yeah. Stealing it from Tony Tarasco. But uh, after tying the series at one, they end up losing in five. Um, he hit only 200 in the ALDS and then went one for 20. His only hit of that series was a home run. I know, I saw. Which is it, which is sad because we were talking about with the Pirates, he does have these slumps that you see in the playoffs, like this with the Orioles. And it really cost them because he was in this huge, you know, offensive producing lineup. I bet it cost them, you know, not the series, but I mean, we see that's where this... When your four or five hitters only hitting 50. That's exactly <laughs> like 50. <laughs> yeah, not 100, 50. <laughs> 50. So that's what I mean, where it, it had to have been just that huge slump for them. And you, like you were saying, there was a huge momentum shift in this series. Yeah. So uh, 97, he's a free agent now after the 96 season heading into 97. And he's a part of many hired guns, which the Florida Marlins bring in. This is the only time that I feel like this has ever worked. Yeah, they, it's, it literally is. In baseball history, the 97 Marlins, it's the only time. And I feel like they literally, this was like they scouted it out like, all right, these guys are veterans. They know what they're going to do. We're going to bring in all of these pieces, and it's going to be for one year. Yeah, it, it, Wayne Huizenga, blockbuster guy. Yeah, actually, Blockbuster guy. He was the one that was like president of Blockbuster. Um, they bring in Moises Alou, the guy that peed on his hands in the shower to make them tougher. Oh. They brought it. All-star, by the way. He was a great player, Alou, left fielder. Uh, they brought in Gary Sheffield, who we yep. did an episode on. Uh, Devo White. So they basically bought their entire outfield mm -hmm. for that season. And uh, the strong pitching staff led by uh, the likes of Kevin Brown, LeVon Hernandez, and Al Leiter. And uh, they're good, finally, for the first time in their short history. Yeah. And uh, Benia is a big part of that. Um, he's moved back to third base this year, actually. Oh, yeah, I saw that they because they're so stacked. So they put Sheffield in right field. Yep. Yeah. But uh, he has a solid season. He hits 297, 17 homers, 96 RBIs, 39 doubles. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is attributed to the dimensions of the ballpark. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, a lot of it is that um, they're playing in the Dolphin Stadium. Yeah. So the fences are way further back, and they're like tarping off the very top, except that year when they were popular, they were selling out the stadium. 
But uh, Bonilla has a great, uh, great season. So do the Marlins. They make the wild card that year. So they make the playoffs for the first time because of those big bad Braves. Oh, yeah. In the, uh, NL East. Um, they play in the ALDS or NLDS, excuse me, against the Giants. Uh, we brought that up in the Jeff Ken episode um, where it's just a weird series. And much like the 2003 one, like I know game two, um, the winning run is scored when the center fielder throws it. He throws a dart. It should have had the base runner by a mile. It hits the pitching mound and just skips vertically. Yeah, it just goes straight up in the air. And then Devon White has a grand slam in a game which can hit two homers for San Francisco to basically win in the series. Um, so they win the NLDS, and then they have to go up against the Braves in the NLCS. And uh, in the NLDS, Benia hits three thirty three with a homer and three RBIs. And then against the Braves, and this is one of the craziest NLCSs uh, I've ever seen. Like we were talking about that Brave strike zone. Oh, yeah, yeah. They got the same thing done to him by LeVon Hernandez in one of the in uh, game five i believe in game five mm-hmm. if you go and watch that it's probably one of the worst umpiring jobs but i still enjoy it because it's like the braves had been getting away with that for a decade and so it finally came back it's like matt damon in uh, goodwill hunting how do you like them apples yeah i got a number that was a strike <laughs> well it's got to be unbelievably frustrating at that especially with that era of braves pitchers where they could paint corners, and then for some reason, when it was obviously a ball, they would just like still get strikes. It was, it was, it must have been quite frustrating. Well, the big three at that time, Maddox, because Avery's gone. It's um, Maddox, Smoltz, and Glavin. Their best pitcher in that series was their fourth starter, Denny Nagel. Oh yeah, actually, yeah, he was the one that won them. I think both their games, but uh, he hits two sixty one with four RBIs, and th- for the first time in their history, the Florida Marlins are in the World Series, and Bobby Bonilla is in his first World Series. And they're long and, uh, you know, yeah. historic history. Oh, yeah, in four years? I four think, years? I was, just, yeah. I was just trying to think that in that when I was thinking that, because I think they started in 93. Um, but, uh, so, they, yeah, they make Bonilla the World plays, Series. Bonilla plays a huge role in this World Series, particularly Game 7. This is one of the most, ex- like we talked about 91 in the Kirby Puckett episode about it being a very exciting series. 97 is just as exciting, yep. and they're playing the Cleveland Indians, who are finally good. I was just going to say, this was one of those teams where it's like, look, it's one of the oldest teams. They finally make it to the World Series, and they're playing they have not won the a, Marlins. Yeah, they have not won a World Series in 49 years, and they're playing the Marlins, the Nouveau Reach Marlins. Oh, uh, shit. And uh, it was a, there was a lot of, uh, you know. Randy a, Newman's burn I was just going to say, there's a lot of Randy Newman playing. All right, so uh, Benia in Game 7 plays a very um, important role because Mar- or the Marlins give up an early lead. They give up an early lead. They're down 2 to nothing. Up until the seventh inning, the bottom of the seventh, Jarrett Wright is firing bullets for Cleveland. He's like basically a 20-year-old. Yeah. And Bonilla comes up and hits a home run. Granted, it's a solo homer, but it cuts the deficit to one. And by the ninth inning, when Jose Mesa comes in and allows a run, where they were putting the World Series trophy literally in Cleveland's Cleveland clubhouse... Couldn't they, get that Cleveland no, clubhouse out of here. I it was couldn't stuck do Cleveland in clubhouse. But uh, they were they literally put it in there, and then you see this happen where like the guys are like taking it out. So if you're in this like Cleveland 
team. You like yeah. see the World Series trophy coming in, and then they literally are taking it back out. Like, oh shit, they just scored another run. <laughs> they did the same thing in '86 with the Red Sox. Yep. Yeah, but um, by the 11th inning, um, bottom of the 11th, um, Cleveland gets some bad breaks. There's Tony Fernandez boots a ball. Bonilla gets like basically a seeing eye single, although he's thrown out. They have enough base runners on that Edgar Renteria singles home Craig Council, and the Marlins and Bonilla are champions. Which is insane to even say yeah. in this 97 series, but it's one of those really great tight series that you're you're thankful for because you want yeah. these, you know, these actually like the Super Bowl, the World Series, you want them to be good series yeah, and this was a blowout yeah, yeah all the games were uh, pretty close and, and it was a lot of you know veterans winning their first and like shit like that yeah so. sheffield winning his first yep. i mean you had uh, darren dalton and jim eisenreich from those 93 phillies teams yeah i mean it was it was nice to see but then wayne Heizanga decides after the season no more <laughs> well it was just like we did it guys they're like yeah we could do another one next year he's like no no, no we did it not so fast my friend it's over <laughs> And it was over because they just kept selling off pieces like Kevin Brown. They traded to the Padres for granted. He was a great player for the Marlins on their next World Series team. Derek Lee, you get rid of your number one starter. Devon White goes to the Diamondbacks. Sheffield, who will bring up, goes later with Bonilla to uh, the Dodgers. But yeah, it's pretty crazy what ends up happening. So in 98, he sticks and stays with the Marlins. Um, but... By that point, they're ready to get rid of him. Yeah. They're ready to get rid of him and his salary as well as Sheffield and his salary. And as we brought up in the Sheffield episode, he doesn't want to leave. Well, he's the linchpin of this whole trade is Sheffield, but they want to get all of the big money people off their team. And uh, what ends up happening is on May 14th, 1998, Manuel Barrios, Jim Eisenreich, Charles Johnson, their starting catcher, and Gary Sheffield, along with Benia, are traded to the Dodgers for Todd Zeal and Mike Piazza. I think Piazza maybe spent two weeks with, uh, with, the, Marlins. with the Marlins. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we saw that. And it's an interesting trade here because you see the Marlins are just like, no, 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 we're dumping. And then they really didn't care if Piazza kind of came in. Yeah, that's, they, that's they were trading for Piazza specifically to dump salary yep. and specifically to trade Piazza somewhere else, which we'll bring up later. Um, and after that season, and this is kind of like the last productive season of Benia's career. Yes. Think about it. He had only 249, 11 homers and 45 RBIs. And after that half season in LA, he's a free agent again because they wanted to get rid of him to get players back. I was going to say they both kind of had the same idea there. Yeah. Like exactly. they were just like, nah, we're salary dumping on each other. So in November 98, he's a free agent. Oh, God. And, and but he ends up, no, he ends up getting traded. Oh, he gets traded. Yeah, no, you're traded. right. He's you're right. Free agent. Yeah, I, I screwed that up. But yeah, he gets traded. And where does he get traded, Chris? This is what is so ridiculous. And why, as an organization, you would go back and get him. I, yeah. know, I know he's a veteran. I get all that. But like the fucking New York Mets decide to go back and bring Bobby Bonilla and put him back into the orange and blue. And I, I fool me once. Shame on me. Fool me twice or shame on you. Shame on me. Yeah. yeah there you that go. Deal. You know, there's I, a lot of shame know. in this one. It's just shame. The Mets are just shame. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, November 11th, he's traded for closer uh, Mel Rojas and. It's just a disaster. Right away. I mean, in, in the 99 season, I do want to bring up, they don't happen very often, but the Mets are good. 
in 99. Not good enough to overtake the Braves, but they're good. And they have good young outfielders too, that they're trying to bring up and like make good. The problem is those guys are getting playing time in front of Bonilla and he just turns into a toxic asshole. Well, he felt like he should be getting the starting job every time, which yeah. some, sometimes you feel like that. And he's really clashing with the manager, Bobby, Bobby Valentine. Yeah. And this is where you see him start to have like a disconnect with the team. And that's when oh, he's he, him and Ricky Henderson are just alienating themselves. Henderson's not being as much of a jerk as Bonds. He's just like, well, they brought me into play and I'm not playing. I'm just going to hang out. Yeah. I'm not going to be toxic. I'm just, just going to hang out. Yeah, I'm just going to hang out. And uh, the Mets are good that year enough to make the wild card with even with Benia hitting 160. I know it was horrible. Um, they go into the NLDS against the Diamondbacks, who are making their first postseason appearance. And they went on a game winning homer by a backup catcher, Todd Pratt. And they find themselves in the NLCS against the Braves that year, obviously, because the Braves always made the playoffs during this era. And uh, they go in a 3-0 hole in that series. Um, this was the John Rocker series. You can look that up. Um, anyway, they go in a 3-0 hole, but they win games 5 and 6, or 4-5. Uh, and five. and uh, heading into game 6, Benia's not playing. And during the game where they're trying to make this historic comeback, towards the end, him and Ricky Henderson leave the dugout and are playing poker in the clubhouse. Now, I've heard a story about this, and I want to see if, because I've heard it be kind of contested that he was asked, or he they said that he would have been asked to come in and pinch hit. Yeah. But he literally was in the clubhouse playing cards yeah. with Ricky Henderson, and that's what they said. They were like, it was like the 10th inning, and we were looking for you. And they were like, oh, no, no, him and Ricky are just in there. They're, they were like done with the game. Yeah. And it was like that kind of, and I hate to say it, but as, as a professional, even if you're if if they're being like if the Mets are being unprofessional, you feel like you still should be professional. And this is where I feel like Benia really, really lost it for me. As yeah, like, but we see it actually uh, benefits. It him. benefits him <laughs> so greatly monetarily and we're gonna get into this before like before we talk about that 2000 and 2001 he's you know with the cardinals and with the braves doesn't really play a lot doesn't do very well but just yes the, the most important thing is what happens after the 99s he retires after 2001 99 off season is where we get weird let's do it chris so 99 off season the mets are done with bonilla they still owe him 5.9 million dollars mm-hmm in this, and I, I was looking this up, this happens way more than we think it does, yeah. but this one actually is like stand out because the Mets have always hated Bonilla. Yeah. So what they offered they him was- They want to get rid of him. They want to get, they want to get rid of him. They want to get him off the books. So what they offered him was deferred payments. Yeah. And they offered him deferred payments at an increased rate that stacks over time. Yeah. So he's getting like $1.1 million a season from 2011 to 2035. If he forgoes that almost $6 million that he is owed in the 2000 season. So he's almost getting five times as much money. And this is the thing that people are like, why would the Mets make this make this because it seems like such a bad trade. Yeah, because there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of reasons. It was actually brought about by Benia's agent, Dennis Gilbert, where he said, okay, you want to get rid of him? He'll defer the payments. Yeah. He hasn't, you know, he saved his money. Does he need the 6 million now? It's like that question. Would you take a dollar today or a hundred and two weeks? Yes. You know, and that's what Bonilla did. And they have this 
every single July 1st, they have it. Is it Bobby, July 1st? Yeah, yeah. July 1st. It's Bobby Bonilla Day, where he gets $1.1 million from the Mets. Um, I want to say this, though. This is what people kind of don't understand is they let Bonilla go to open up salary cap. So they can get more players for another postseason run, which they made and made the 2000 World Series. So here's my question. For an organization like the Mets, where money really kind of doesn't matter, is fucking $25 million worth a World Series run. Yes. Spread out over 25 years. I 100% agree. 30 million, whatever. But this is where it gets particularly weird. The Mets owner, Fred Wilpon, is thinking, we can make a World Series run, A. B, I am making money hand over fist right now through my investment guy because... 25 million 20 years down the road doesn't mean anything if we win a World Series. Well, and who's his investment guy? And this is the problem. His investment guy is Bernie Blanking Madoff. This is what I found. Of Ponzi scheme fame. This is what I found so interesting about this deal was they gave him an 8% increase, which was pretty big for the time. Yeah. But what the Mets owner said was, I can invest this money at a 10% through Bernie, yep. so I'm actually technically making money. They almost signed Bonilla at 10% because he's just like, well, it's just going to be a, a, a stale deal. Talk about your all-time backfire. It, like, it is so, it is such a ridiculously shitty deal for the Mets because of this thing that they thought, like, they thought there was going to be a lot more <laughs> cash generation than there ever could be. And then Bernie comes. <laughs> Thank God, buddy. What a complete and total shit show. But kudos to Bonilla, though. You know that uh, Bonilla actually had deferred payments from the Orioles, too? Did he really? Yeah. Not, not, not anything crazy, rate, probably, but yeah. this is how common this is, is you see a guy going to free agency, they owe him like $2 million, and they'll be like, all right, we'll defer it. So like, they have these contracts laid out where it's like, this ha- this is why yeah. his agent was so like he'll do it again. Yeah. He has this money and they were like, oh, "Okay. Okay. Oh, this Madoff guy seems to be on the level and making us all sorts of Oh my god. <laughs> Manny Ramirez actually has a huge one from the Red Sox. Does he really? Yeah, oh and god. they were glad to pay it because and this is well, what people were saying first world because in 86 years. They love him and they were like, "No, no, no, we're happy to do this." The thing with Bonilla and why this we is such We hate him and want him gone. Yes, they hate him and they have to pay him a million dollars every year. And it's this is what I found so ridiculously funny. I believe it was 2017. Yeah. The Mets made the World Series. 15. 15. Yeah. Yes, 15. Um, and they listed their top like four salaries. Oh, God. And it wasn't even their top guy wasn't even half. So their two top <laughs> salaries did not equal what they paid Bonilla in that year. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, my God. And these payments, if you don't know, continue till 2035. So if he recoups all that money from just being a dick, holy cow. That's amazing. Oh, it's the greatest asshole money I could ever imagine. But off of the... Off of the... Contract, Still great career. We, yeah, we can wrap it up with this career. I mean, six-time All-Star, a World Series winner, um, a two seventy nine batting average, over 2,000 hits with 2010, uh, tw- 287 home runs, 1,173 RBIs, and he won three Silver Sluggers. I mean, everyone – that's the thing I wanted to talk about Benia today is everyone remembers either A, the contract, or B, his horrendous stints in New York. 
you got to look at it in the aggregate where this guy, not a Hall of Famer, but a really good ball player for a really long time. Yeah, not a Hall of Famer, but in that like almost second rung of guys where you're just like, yeah, he'll never be one. But really great player who went through these ups and downs, needed the right thing. And like we, like you said, World Series champion, you can't ever take that away from him, plus that $30 million. Plus the $30 million. And I mean, <laughs> when, when you think about it, if you had said, if he had maybe chose another team in 92 outside of the Mets... Leading into that 91 or 92 season, you were thinking this guy could be a Hall of Famer. Yes. Like, that's where it was going. That's the direction it was going. Didn't quite get there, but a great baseball player, Bobby Bonilla.